I mean, often when we go hiking, it, we're, I'm struck by people that are like having loud conversations in the woods on the trail because I do feel like most connected when I'm experiencing, I am this insignificant little speck in this much larger universe that is just operating on its own in amazing ways. This is the Humans of Gaming podcast, an open and honest conversation about games, life, and belief. Gaming. I'm Drew Dixon. I am the chief content nerd of Online Nerd, and I'm joined by Chris Walton. Hey, Chris. Hey, I'm Chris, and I'm the chief executive nerd for Online Nerd. And yeah, we're glad you're here to listen to our podcast, where we have designers and developers and people in the games industry to talk about the thing they made, but more importantly, to hear about who they are as people and how that informs the things they make. So. Super glad you're here. We hope you enjoy what you're hearing. Yeah, for sure. We have a really cool guest on for this episode who is like, kind of like a, this is probably the wrong word, but like an overnight success story in the board gaming space. Like someone who no one's heard of in the world of board games. And then all of a sudden everybody knows who she is. If you're like, if you're really into board games, you know what Wingspan is. Um, you probably even tried to get a copy for a long time and couldn't get one because it was so popular. So it's one of the most beautiful games on the market right now. Certainly one of the most loved in this current uh, stage of board for gaming. Sure. Well, um, even one um, game of the year, right? At Spiel. Yeah. Last, yeah, was that did. last we, year? 2019, yeah. I think that's right, yeah. Yeah, we should have talked about that. That's pretty yeah, wild to have a, that be your first board game. Totally. And, uh, yeah. So It's a really um, good chat. And it's cool, too, because, yeah. you know, we're we're still continuing on in this uh, season of the podcast where we want to have uh, women on as guests specifically to highlight women that are doing really cool stuff in the industry. Um, yeah. And Elizabeth is definitely one of one of those people and we got yeah. to have a really good really good chat and then did we I, say her full name by the way yeah, yeah. it's elizabeth hargrave <laughs> i mean it's probably in the title if you didn't guess by now but um yeah, the other yeah. cool thing too that i thought was really interesting was you know the conversation we get into in the second half of the show which is about her upbringing as a unitarian universalist which yeah. i'm always super intrigued about people that grew up differently than me and um I just never thought that people grew up in that sort of denomination because I thought it was really new, but she informs us what otherwise. What do you know? Yeah, barely what anything, you know? clearly. Uh, Richard Rouse III, we had on the podcast once, who made The Church in the Darkness. Yep. He talked about his wife being yeah. Unitarian Universalist. I remember that, yeah. But, uh, but he's not. So mm-hmm. this is the first person that's like, you know, really into that, uh, that we've talked to. And that was yeah. interesting. I didn't, there's a lot I didn't know about. Unitarian Universalist that Same. I learned. Um, so, uh, but yeah, tell us about some new stuff going on at Love Thy Nerd. Yeah, so we have just in the last you know few weeks 
really been pumping a lot of content into our YouTube channel. That was actually, you know, we, we had a um, kind of a planning retreat at the beginning of the year and decided one of the things we really wanted to focus on this year was our YouTube channel and really starting to pump some content there. And lo and behold, coronavirus happens and makes it even more of a necessity for us to be putting mm-hmm. out content online just to keep everybody connected and... Um, and all that good stuff. So please go check out our YouTube channel. It's just YouTube, search Love Thy Nerd, and you'll find us. We've got lots yeah. of different video series on there. Drew actually has some different interviews and things like that that are popping up from um, PAX East. So you can go check those out. Interviews with game designers, kind of like almost like this podcast, but just in a quick way shorter. <laughs> yeah. Form. Um, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So go check some of that stuff out because we're, we're putting out some good things yeah. there. We're getting some beard bros going. We're getting some co-optional going. So if you were into those shows, um, <coughs> we're going to have some of those on YouTube for you. Yeah. And uh, I know also, like, it's just a weird, frustrating, anxious, like, scary time to be alive <laughs> uh, during the coronavirus. And so I also, um, Bubba has helped me put together some, uh, like, kind of devotional type yeah. videos. We just did the first one recently, so that's a new thing, too. It's just me, basically, me on a camera trying to be, be an old Pastor Drew, trying to give some people some hope. Um, so it's one of the more, like, Jesus-y things that we've done for Love Thy Nerd. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think, you know, if you're a Christian and you're listening to this, it'll probably encourage you. If you're not, you might still find it, like, curious, at least. Uh, but, yeah, we all need some grounding some things to keep us hopeful right now and that's the goal so yeah you did a great job of that by the way it's called like i just forgot what it's called devos on demand Demand. and by the way like all these things that we're doing on youtube and our website and like this podcast beard bros optional free play the pull list every the website like all these things the the work that we do at conventions that we're hoping and praying will be uh you know, be something we can get back to before too long, you know, when coronavirus hopefully passes. Um, all these things require investment. Like we need money to do all these things. There, None of these things are free. They all cost us time and energy and money. And so would you think about partnering with us? Just go to lovelinear.com slash partner and consider um, helping us out to do these things. And if you do, you can be a part of a free, a free it's not free because you have to pay. <laughs> you have to donate to Love Thy Nerd. You have to do a recurring donation to be a part of this uh, private Facebook group where you kind of get to see some of the inner workings of what we do at Love Thy Nerd. Um, and also just the people in that group are all really rad. And so it's a way to sort of like, I don't know, be more connected to A little to extended um, family. Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, uh, if you dig what we do, just think about proving it by oh. uh, helping us out. <laughs> Um, but seriously, like we know it's, this is a hard time for yeah. a lot of people financially. So we get that there are lots of ways you're thinking about, um, you know, saving and all that kind of stuff. But, uh, but you know, uh, honestly, like we don't know how this is going to affect Love Thy Nerd. Uh, yeah. we rely on donations. So, um, yeah, just, I guess, keep that in mind. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. That's a great commercial. Yeah. We're really good at this. I don't know if you guys knew. Yeah. No. I mean, I figure if they're still listening after all this time, they must think we're good at it. Yeah. I right? hope so. <laughs> okay. Well, listen yeah. for yourself. We got Elizabeth Hargrave coming up. 
Yeah, whether or not you appreciate anything we just said, I know you'll appreciate hearing from a really, uh, really cool game designer. Yeah. Hello and welcome to Humans of Gaming. Oh, I, we're not even going to do that. What in the world, Drew? I mean, you blew it. <laughs> well, I just said that we just weren't going to do that. blew it. I know. We'll All just right. leave this in. Uh, I think it's great. <laughs> so, uh, Chris is here with me yeah. and also Elizabeth Hargrave. Hey, Elizabeth. Hey. How is, uh, how is the quarantine life for you right now? Um, a little lonely. I'm here with my husband. It's beautiful spring here in D.C., so we're trying to get outside a lot. And uh, and take advantage of the beautiful spring days, but everyone else seems to have the same idea. So we're having to get creative about places right. to go. Right, yeah. <laughs> you can not be getting you know squished up against people on the trail all the time. You guys normally like pretty outdoorsy and like to be outside a lot. Yeah, definitely. And spring migration is starting up for the birds. So this time of year, especially, we're like out looking for. All the all the warblers that are only here during migration season that like they spend the winter south of here and they spend the summer north of here and so like this is our chance to see them right now. So you've just played your hand on what we suspected. So <laughs> you must be a a fan of birds. How'd <laughs> you guess? Why would that? I be? just had I just had a hunch, but I wasn't a hundred percent sure. I was like ninety nine. So, but you tipped it over. So, uh, that's cool. So, so you guys, uh, as, as that something you and your husband have shared for a while or where did that love of birds come from? Yeah, he got hooked a little bit before I did. And then, um, I mean, we were always very outdoorsy and that was kind of part of how we bonded in the first place. Like one of our first hike, our first dates was going hiking, but, um, mm -hmm. where did you yeah. go hike? I'm curious. Oh, um, Harper's Ferry, which is like out on the West Virginia, Virginia, Maryland border, okay. kind of. It's where John Brown staged his raid on the arsenal and during the Civil War or before the oh. before the Civil War. I don't oh, know my history, history well enough, but like, yeah, yeah. So there's like a national park there, and then the the Cino Canal and the Potomac River go through there, and so. That's it's a beautiful, beautiful spot. So your husband was into uh, bird watching before you, and he kind of introduced you to the hobby. Yeah, or I, you know, I would tag along some, but he was really learning the the birds before I got totally hooked by it. And then we went on a vacation to Costa Rica, and uh, and I was hooked for sure. They have amazing birds down there. What is it that you? love about bird watching like what draws you to to keep up with it you know a lot of people ask me that and i find it really hard to articulate mm. i mean birds are just amazing <laughs> and like i don't know everyone likes watching animals in general right like i think yeah we find animals appealing they're just cool creatures and birds are really pretty and and have their i'm a dog watcher the, right there you know we all like the cute animal videos and birds are like doing amazing things all the time just outside where you can go find them you don't have to watch a video online 
Um, you know, and they're pretty and they have pretty songs and I don't know what's not to like. Hey, I think you did a great job articulating that. answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't think it needs to go any deeper than that. That's great. Um, so where, so you live in the DC area. How's, uh, how's DC doing in terms of the coronavirus? Um, a lot of people are, are saying our numbers are like that we are right on the cusp of either becoming the next New York or if social distancing works, like dodging the bullet. We're like a couple weeks behind them and maybe have enough warning that I'm in the Maryland suburbs of DC and the, the Maryland governor has been pretty aggressive, um, mm. In terms of like, he was, we were one of the first state, not very first, but like in the first wave of states to shut the schools and send people home. So I I feel yeah. good about that. Everyone I know has been very strict about social distancing, but I know my friend group very easily could just be a little bubble. So, yeah. So I live in the Nashville, Tennessee area and supposedly what they're saying here is that the the peak is going to be like April 15th and they're suspecting that it'll start like, um, you know, uh, going, going down from there. So, but we'll see. It's, there's so much that's unknown until we like get to that point. Right. right there's um, such a lag. I think most people are, yeah, yeah, very true. And there's definitely like people here who are not taking it seriously because I think there's that whole like, I don't know, like, um, Southern kind of independent, um, <laughs> you're not going to tell me how to live my life kind of vibe with yeah, some people. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I do think most people are like, you know, I don't think it helps. I'm trying to keep a positive attitude because I don't think it helps to be like, I don't know, just down in the dumps about the people that do that. <laughs> uh, yeah. and to just hope, hold on to hope. That's what I'm trying to yeah. do is to hope that, enough of us are taking it seriously, right. which I do think is true that it's making a difference. So. There was a very interesting map in the New York times. I think it was today that was based on cell phone data, like movement data. So it was mm -hmm. like hot spots of where have people stopped moving around compared to their normal oh. level of moving around. And like, yeah, the northeast corner and the west coast of the country are like much much less movement than normal and then there's this wave through the southeast and then like the western plain states that's like pretty much business as usual in terms of the <laughs> and it's really <laughs> scary oh uh, yeah. that is really scary yeah hey west thankfully coast i can yeah yeah <laughs> Thankfully, I can say that at least that's not true in Nashville. Just about everything here is shut down. So yeah. um, we are trying to get out, though, like like you are, you know, just to the parks and stuff. But even then, it's like there's some of those are kind of getting, getting overwhelmed because it feels like one of the few things people can do to get out of their house. It's a weird thing because it's like we all are trying to do our part. But at the same time, you, you can't just stay in your house forever. Right. And you'll go crazy. I beg to We've differ. all got to get some fresh air. <laughs> right. So, like, so we too. have a shutdown order in Maryland now. Like we are supposed to be staying, I guess, stay at home order. Right. But there's an exception for yeah. exercise. Yeah. Like that you can't 
yeah. make people literally stay in their house all the time. Well, we definitely don't want this to be like the coronavirus update yeah, podcast. Right. Uh, a few weeks from now, it'll all be out of date again. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. Um, but, you know, we do hope that this podcast brings some people some joy in the midst of this time. I know it's frustrating, uh, to say the least, for a lot of people. It's anxious for a lot of us. A lot of us are feeling a lot of anxiety. So we hope that these conversations, you know, give people some perspective and some some joy, I guess. I don't know. Perspective is probably the wrong word, but some joy in the midst of this. So, yeah, tell us about, like, how you got into making board games. Um, I had been playing hobby board games for probably 10 years before I started mm. designing. And I was starting... What's your, what's your jam? Like, what type of board games are you into? Um... I don't. I would say like midweight euros. Yeah, but I'll do. You know, I'll do a good party game. I'll. I find it difficult to find the time and the people to play like really heavy stuff. Although I have a couple friends yeah. actually since um, the coronavirus whole like the people that I normally play test with on Wednesdays. A couple of them we've been getting together online to play like some of the heavier classic games that we haven't played in a long time and like really think about why. Yeah, they've stuck around and like what makes them tick. So that's been really fun and like which games engrossing. So yesterday we just played Terra Mystica. Oh yeah, I've never played that, but I love Gaia Project. Yeah, and so that's like a little longer and heavier than the games that I'm usually able to get to the table. And I really I enjoy the crunch, but I just don't get to do it that often. So like my sweet mm -hmm. spot in terms of what I actually play is like. A little like you know like wingspan weight euros so yes yeah, so i have been i've been playing playing games for like since 2005 ish and um i don't know like five years ago started really like being dissatisfied with the themes of a lot of games that i had been playing oh. and like enjoying the mechanics and the process of playing but just being uninspired by like castles and trading in the mediterranean and <laughs> all the tropes that we see um and so actually I had a conversation with some friends with my husband yeah i don't know exactly <laughs> <laughs> what there are, it just seems like a really disproportionate number of the board games like at one point my friends yeah, and i actually good. had a moratorium on like buying any new castle games castles of mad king ludwig broke the moratorium <laughs> but <laughs> like right before yeah. that came out we were just like why all the castles no more so so yeah it really came like out of theme and dissatisfaction with theme and like thinking about what what would a game look like that was about something that i was actually into so how do you get over the hump of like because i'm just curious um because a lot of people think about making games i think especially people who are really into board games yeah um so how do you get over the hump of being like I'm a fan of this of this hobby to going like, I'm going to make a game. I just, I got to the point where my brain wouldn't let it go and I kept thinking about it and I just at one point made like some handwritten cards to see how something would work where you had, you know, birds as the theme and the different things that birds eat as their resources and like, how would it even work? And so I just like played against myself a bunch until I had something that kind of worked. And then I played with some of my friends and my husband, you know, and then eventually got it to the point that I was willing to show it to people in the outside world um, and got hooked into 
Unpub, which is a big playtesting con up in Baltimore mm-hmm. and um, and the local design scene here in the DC area. There's a bunch of people between DC and Baltimore. Um, so there's like a monthly playtesting event um, at one of the local uh, board game cafes here in Maryland and um, some other like invite only things at people's houses. And so once I got kind of hooked into that community, it really started moving forward more because I think playtesting with other designers, you can just, you learn so much and, and people really can help you think through like what isn't working and why isn't it working and what are things you can try to fix it in a way that, um, just play testing with your friends. You don't really necessarily get that level of insight. You might have a gem of a friend that thinks really critically about how board games work, <laughs> but a lot of people just play games and don't think about it. And that's fine. Yeah, yeah. But when you can, um, when you can find other folks that really want to think about like how all the pieces fit together, it's just priceless. That's really interesting. Cause I do think that, those people are rare gems because I'm not that person. <laughs> like I've had <laughs> friends that like want to play test games. And I'm like, oh yeah, let's do it. And I just want to play it one time and right. give you a bunch of feedback and then never play it again yeah. until you've finished it. Right. But like, I think I can, you're, my, yeah. <laughs> there's those people. Yeah. My husband play tested Wingspan a lot in the early stages. and But then he got to the point of like, oh, he just can't stand it that the rules change every time he plays. Right. Yeah. And like, oh, yeah. That would be frustrating now <laughs> that I think about it. <laughs> like, Wait. Oh. So now I really like every once in a while he'll play something just to see what I'm working on, but I try not mm-hmm. to call on him as a play tester because it just burns him out. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah, think, yeah, has there's the a risk of doing that with any friends too. Like you Oh yeah. You there's a quid pro quo when you're playing with other designers that you're going to also play test their games. So they're happy to play yours. Mm. But if you're just like imposing Uh on your friends to play something over and over, that's just not sustainable. That's like pretty important. I would think because when you play test with designers, you're going to get probably feedback from people who play games and think about them a lot and, and kind of, but you need that feedback from people who are like less yeah into that kind of thing. Who how's this going to sit with like the average person, the lay person? Well, I think wingspan even a little more so because wingspan is, I mean a lot. I think it's a gateway game for a lot of people. You know, so you almost need that kind of game, feedback. But it's like not actually gateway weight. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> I well, I think that's the brilliance of it. Honestly, game should be. But um, but yeah, and I and there's also a risk of like if you're playtesting with the same people over and over, then they get really used to how a game works, and they can drive you to make it heavier and heavier, like heavier than mm. you want it to be, because it feels easy to them because they've played it a lot. That's interesting. How do you like? How do you hold on to? I. It's so interesting to me, like when I've had friends that are you know, making games and stuff like that. And I have a a close friend who we play games every week and he's kind of in this process of making a game. And like, how do you hold on to that original vision in such a way that you don't, you don't lose it or you don't add too many bits and bobs or you don't remove the soul of what you're originally trying to get at? Like, 
that's just fascinating to me how you would how you would do that. Yeah, I mean, I try now to actually like sit down and articulate sort of a vision of who I want my audience to be and like what I want the game to feel like for them and what story I'm trying to tell with the game. Those sorts of things. I have like a little sheet for each game before I start it. Um, Mm -hmm. And sometimes I fill one out just with a game idea to like file for later and I haven't gone back and actually like made the game, but it's like, this is, this is what a game, this game would be like if I ever get to it. But, Mm -hmm. um, and you know, it's okay for some of those things to change if you start working on something and, and it gets heavier and you decide, okay, this is actually a heavier game for a different audience than I thought I was originally going for or in the other direction. Like, no, really, like, the thing that works here is this simple little thing and that's just a sweet little simple game on its own. Like, it's okay to change your mind about what your vision for the game is, but if you can articulate your vision ahead of time to the extent that, like, you aren't getting strong signals that you need to change that vision, Mm. then that gives you a way, like, as you're making decisions about how to fix problems or what you know what what even is working and isn't working in a game then that gives you something like this is a game for people that are going to be playing it with their families and you know whatever your vision is like a lot of times the answers to how to fix something can come directly out of that that sort of vision statement so what was um what was that like how many iterations do you think just curious, like that Wingspan oh went through before they went to the printer. <laughs> I lost track. I mean, I worked on it for probably th- three years before I pitched it to Stonemeyer, and then I worked on it with Jamie for another year after that. Um, so a lot, a lot of iterations. <laughs> More than three. I mean, often I would I would change something after most playtests, right? A lot of changes. Yeah. Weekly. Weekly for four years. Not really. There were times, especially early on, that, um, you know, I wouldn't work on it for a month or two at a time sometimes. And so I don't, I, I literally have no idea how many iterations I went through, but even like major shifts, like dozens. So is that, what's that process been like for you? Do you have to like learn to let go of ideas? And I'm sure there's things that you just like really wanted into the game, but then just had to give up on because of playtesting and realizing like this needs to change. Do you, do you, hand, do you handle that well? Did you, what, what have you learned from that? I'm curious. I think so. I, I that I do handle it well um, in the sense that like, I mean, early on did I, I don't know. I think it's a, it's a learned skill mm-hmm. to yeah. even put something out in front of people like that at the beginning is the hardest part, not mm. the changing it, just the like letting other people see it and feeling like they might think you're an idiot, but putting it in front of them anyway, <laughs> yeah. like, mm-hmm. that's a huge learned skill. And then once you get over that hurdle, I don't, I don't know. I, I do a lot of um, running focus groups for a living as my day job. Um, Although I've stopped doing a lot of consulting because I've been doing more game stuff. Like focus um, groups for for products? 
for more uh, for on Medicare policy. So I with a lot of okay. Medicare beneficiaries mm. and physicians and um, different groups that are affected by by government healthcare programs. And so like I feel so like that, that still DNA makes me feedback able to in just, you. like yeah. It, yeah to like listen to what people are saying and to like think critically about what they're saying in terms of like what are they really saying and what's the next question to ask them based on what they just said mm. and that kind of stuff and so I, I feel like that background maybe give me a leg up on yeah. the like taking in feedback and processing it and not taking it so personally and um yeah I, I, I didn't have a ton of darlings within the process of wingspan I feel like Mostly I just like I listen to what playtesters are saying and and I'm willing to try most suggestions once unless I can sort of already foresee how it's not going to work. What was the uh, experience or how's the experience been of finally publishing a game, especially one that like has done really well? What's that experience been like for you? Yeah, it's pretty wild. I mean, so far <laughs> beyond anything that i expected right um because just i mean a lot of the advice that you hear in the sort of how to get your board games published is like if your first game sells five thousand copies you're doing well as a first-time designer like that's yeah mm -hmm. that's sort of the expectation bar that mm -hmm. a lot of people set um and a lot of first-time games don't even sell that and that's fine too but like you've gotten your game out in the world and that so that in and of itself, so just like putting like, your game out there is a very exciting yeah, feeling. Right. And mm -hmm. then like... And you are like prepared for that potentially like <laughs> right. for it to sell like a few thousand copies and you would have been okay with that? I would have been thrilled. Yeah. And so then like yeah. a, a uh -huh. month before he announced Wingspan, I heard an interview with Jamie Stegmaier because he hadn't told me how many copies he was going to print where he just happened to mention in passing that like his minimum print runs for his games are 10,000 copies. I was like, Oh, okay. <laughs> 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 that's more than I was expecting. Um, I just it's hadn't even like asked like, him yet. There's going to be a lot on the shelf. <laughs> yeah. Right, store a right. lot in my garage. <laughs> no, but, but Stonemaier games has such a following and I, you know, it was a real oh, yeah. blessing to, to hook up with them. And, and then, for wingspan to take off and like do even better than just that base of the stonemire following has just been amazing and so fun to see everyone playing it and to like that like there's this whole you know facebook group community of people that are playing yeah. it and posting pictures and like that whole side which is um just amazing That's to right. see and, and getting to meet people at Gen Con. Like I spent four days at Gen Con with people just like coming up to the booth all day wanting to meet me. And um, that's just unbelievable. Yeah. It's like uh, you make a game that's so beloved like this um, that people like really dig. And it's been super I mean, you couldn't get a copy for a long time. Right. It was so, yeah. um, so sought after. Pretty much every uh, print run last year sold out within a few weeks yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> and now it's sold wild. like, like 300 something thousand copies oh my gosh that's i was incredible. gonna ask you how many man yeah hey, congrats thanks so you you <laughs> did you did a little bit better than your 5,000 right like goal <laughs> <laughs> uh that's that's awesome um 
forgot what I was going to say. Something with regard to that. Oh, uh, you, so you go to a place like Gen Con, and uh, like you're almost like a celebrity there. What's what's that like going to Gen Con and having people be like, sign my game, and oh my gosh, you're the person that made this thing yeah. that I love. It's an interesting kind of celebrity because it's like only within context, right? Like I wouldn't sure. get stopped in the aisles of the exhibit hall but if i was at the booth and people like put it together who i was even though i, I was wearing a wingspan t-shirt all day but you know, like at I was the wearing booth, a t-shirt that said together. i'm elizabeth hargrave why weren't people stopping me <laughs> but uh but it, it's not like paparazzi level celebrity and it certainly yeah. outside of the board game world like no one has any idea so it's very not interesting yet. like you can really turn it on and off <laughs> Which is nice. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. All right. Well, we want to hear about like you and where you come from and how that's shaped you and the work that you do and all that kind of stuff. So uh, did you grow up in the D.C. area or where did you where did you grow up? No, I actually spent my the year that I was in second grade. We lived in D.C. because my dad was doing a, a sabbatical at the National Institutes of Health. Okay. But um so i had like fond childhood memories of dc but in this like special year kind of way but uh i went to elementary school in southern illinois and then we moved to um florida north florida when i was in middle school okay. what part of florida uh gainesville where the university of florida is. okay so uh your dad was a physician uh biochemist and your mom she she around yeah, she um, she went to law school at the University of Florida when we moved to Gainesville and became a lawyer. She was a um, she taught environmental science actually before that. Oh, the real power couple. So I I come by it honestly, my outdoorsiness. It's a it's a family yeah. hobby. Yeah. And so so I guess was their um, their professions that influenced you to get into like what she did with like uh, you said you you do focus groups for for medicaid stuff or how did that uh, i don't know that their professions influenced me that consciously but um yeah i yeah. uh i went to graduate school in public policy i was very i actually started out as a religious studies major in college and but switched oh, to public policy because i kind of realized like i wanted to have a more concrete like impact on you wanted to actually help people. <laughs> yeah. More, more like, uh, I don't know, less emotionally and more practically. Yeah. Um, I can see that. And, and I also realized like the, that I would be terrible at actually like being the head of a congregation or something. I grew up Unitarian Universalist. And um, so like the one oh, cool. vision I had at one point was being a UU minister, but like, I am not even, I'm, I feel like I'm not enough of an extrovert to actually like be mm. a good pastor. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think so, that's yeah, a bit of a misnomer though. Yeah. I don't know. That's what it felt like to me when I was like wrestling with this. In my I party. can, yeah, I can totally see how <laughs> right. it would feel that way. Right. Certainly a lot of the, like the way we think someone not to be a pastor. Right. Feels very extroverted. Right. But I know some really good ones that are, that are, you know, sure. so. Right. Cause yeah. it also takes a certain amount of like self-reflection and that sort of thing. Yeah. 
but so anyway, so I went to graduate school for public policy straight out of college and um, cause I didn't really know what I wanted to do or like had made this shift in what I thought I wanted to do um, mm-hmm. and got really interested in healthcare policy specifically while I was in graduate school. So I was doing a lot around poverty and a lot around healthcare and sort of how those two mm-hmm. interact um, because healthcare is such a healthcare disparities are such a result of That's... poverty and vice versa. Um, so that, yeah, those problems aren't going around, going away anytime soon yeah. right now. So I don't know. I keep uh, wondering yeah. whether like super high unemployment as a result of COVID, if it could result in people being able to pivot to argue for universal healthcare, but it's, still a heavy it's gonna be wild to see how things change after this for sure yeah yeah hey so rewinding a bit because i'm really interested like growing up unitarian universalist and what was that like because i i feel like my perception is that it's a relatively newer um would you call it a denomination or i don't know what you would call it and so the idea of somebody growing up that way like that's foreign to me i just i think of it as right. like it's this newer thing that people join as adults or whatever you know right and a lot of people do and and um i mean it has roots in like the 1850s religious revivals there were unitarians and there were universalists Mm-hmm. Um, and the Unitarians were like the Ralph Waldo Emerson Thoreau New Englanders, and the Universalists were like some of. Um, so Unitarians were like, Jesus is not the literal Son of God, but um, still believed in a lot of other Christian traditions, mm-hmm. just like the whole like literally like, their problem was with the concept of the trinity <laughs> and yeah. then the universalists still believed in the trinity but didn't believe in the concept of hell like that a good god would not send you to hell and it, over the course of their evolution those two denominations ended up becoming more and more similar in their theology and they ended up merging in the 1960s and so, like, my mom's family was actually Unitarians going way back. They were in New Hampshire. Um, and so, like, her family, generations of Unitarians and then Unitarian Universalists. Um, but, yeah, so now as a denomination, you'll find a lot of people who are straight up atheists. Um mm-hmm probably in the majority even and you find a lot a lot a lot of people who find the denomination as adults like you said but there's people that grow up in it too and and you find a lot of people who are like seeking connection or spirituality or you know something that's not as dogmatic as what they grew up with sure um, because you know there's like this list of principles and one of them is like we believe in the free and responsible search for truth and meaning right like just broadly Mm -hmm. that that process is a valuable process but that it's okay for people to end up in different places as a result of that process 
Yeah, that's interesting. So your parents uh, were, were, were doing that? as you were growing up, what, what did that look like? Could you go on Sunday or what, how do yep. you, yep. So what the, is like the practice of a Unitarian Universalist? Yeah, it's pretty, I don't know. Do I want to say it's a typical church service? It's like, it's a church service. <laughs> you go to church. Yeah. Um, and um, there's usually like, meditative prayer like stuff going on <laughs> to center people mm -hmm. but often not um depending on the minister it may or may not invoke god um usually like one of the hymns that my church growing up sang every week was called spirit of life so it was like this more encompassing like you can call it god or you can just sort of think more generally of like life um mm -hmm. as something that you want to invoke as like a, a centering thing to connect to yeah and then that like there's a sermon by the minister and it's often you know something about how you want to live your life or how to um, be a good person, how to survive hardship, how to, you know, the things that people are seeking in any sermon, but without drawing necessarily on Christian scriptures to come up with answers. So yeah. drawing much more on literature or poetry or philosophy um, Instead of just saying, like, someone wrote this in a book that we believe is inherently true, and therefore this is the answer. Like, a lot more questioning mm -hmm. about what are different ways that different faiths have uh, have treated this subject. And in the Sunday school, one of the curricula, like, every few years, they'll, um, like, for, do several grades at once where all the kids, like, study the world religions and go to church services and, and other denominational services from as many religions as you can find in your local community. So like, I think that's incredible. Like, yeah, all it was incredible. Should be doing that. Like, and it yeah. really reinforces that feeling of like, there isn't one truth. Like people find many different truths and um, they're all meaningful to the people that practice that religion. And like, you can't just dismiss it. That's, that is truth to the people that that observe that practice mm -hmm. um, and like finding the good in any of them. So, I mean, growing up in, you said North Florida, which is, mm -hmm. I mean, people classify that as the South, right? Is that still, I mean, yeah. would people yeah, classify like that Gainesville, like Bible Belt South? Gainesville is a college town. And then once yeah. you get, you know, out into the countryside around Gainesville, yeah, you're in like deep south. North Florida is very different. Like if you if your picture of Florida is South Florida, like Orlando or Miami, North Florida is 100 percent different culturally. Um, well, yeah, I guess I would picture it more like conservative evangelical kind of stuff. Yeah, is we were accurate? an hour from the Georgia border. So yeah, yeah. But within Gainesville, so I guess my question, like, I mean, so being unit, sorry, being in that Unitarian Universalist camp, like, what were the interactions like with, um, 
I don't know, was it hard? I would just imagine it being hard in that kind of environment because I think most evangelicals think of universal, you know, Unitarian Universalists as just satanic people destined for hell. Right. <laughs> so I like, didn't get was that, in that a thing? Like that that wasn't the people that I knew in Gainesville. I got that in Southern Illinois before we moved. We were in a much smaller town mm-hmm. and I def yeah, I had mm-hmm classmates tell me I was going to hell and it was very confusing as like a third grader to be told that right yeah <laughs> so I remember like so my dad's family That's you was say, well jokes like, on you because there isn't a hill right so like my grandpa at one point gave me a bible and I would like read the bible in secret I was like trying to figure out what all these people were trying to tell me about and like the bible does not make sense when you're in third grade yeah <laughs> it doesn't make sense when you're 34 Maybe. Right, right. So maybe you're just reading it wrong. Yeah, that's right. It's your fault. (laughs) So your grandparents were like Christians, or or yeah, my dad was kind of a black sheep in his family, but for many reasons, Uh not only religion, like the whole culture of you know, they were. I mean, they were mainstream like Presbyterians. What um, what did they? What did your like? So did your people in your family then your extended family like kind of worry about you because of your family being Unitarian? I don't know. I probably I don't we didn't have that kind of relationship with my dad's family. <laughs> like, oh, I, right. so I mean they just the they didn't like just well they just didn't comment on it. I don't know. Yeah. We would we would see them. But we didn't get into we it with them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, so where did, where did you land with all this? Like you, you were into it when you were growing up. Did you, do you still think of yourself as like Unitarian Universalist? Do you still practice or where did where'd you land now? Yeah. When we moved to where I live now, about 10 years ago, like, um, we moved a, far enough away from the church we had been going to in DC, which is like a mother church. It's a huge, huge congregation. People like mm. within Unitarianism have heard about it. It's super active in the civil rights movement and is um, actually mm-hmm. more like multiracial, multicultural than a lot of Unitarian churches. It was an amazing congregation, but it's like just enough of a trip on Sunday morning that I don't make it down there very often. Um yeah. And so I've been, and there's, um, there's a congregation that's closer to me that I just haven't totally connected to up here yet. And I keep saying I'm going to, but it's hard, man. It's hard. It is so hard. And my, and my husband doesn't have the same connection that I do. So he's like, not, he's even less interested in going. Mm -hmm. So then that's like Mm -hmm. even more unmotivating to me to like, I have to not only get up and be motivated, but like be motivated to not do something with my partner on Sunday morning. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. Instead of like having a nice breakfast and going hiking or whatever. So yeah, I, have, I just probably last time I went to the service was maybe a year or two ago. Do you find, I mean, outside of, you know, attending the church service and that kind of stuff, like just daily life things like, you know, do you still find there's practices that, you know, from childhood or your life that you're still doing, you know, like you mentioned earlier, you know, meditative prayer, contemplative prayer stuff, like, are there things like that that are still sort of part of what you're doing? The 
that's a good question. I do sort of go in and out of having a meditation practice. Um, it's something that I constantly like have to get back on the wagon about. I don't know why that is. Mm-hmm. I think again, it's like I um, it's something I have to carve out of my schedule and like actively distance myself from my partner to do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I haven't found like a time in the day when it's just like easy to not be interrupted and to be motivated. Our lives aren't set up for it by default, yeah. for sure. You yeah. know, like <laughs> smartphones and just right. the constant accessibility that we have where I feel like right. meditation and and or that kind of thing is home. like, yeah. Right. My husband and I both work at home. So like we're both just always around. And I think there's something mm-hmm. about that too that makes it harder. Do you find, um, I mean, being that you guys are super into being outside and nature and that kind of stuff, like, is there anything that you connect with? spiritually like just being outside is that a big deal for you yeah definitely i think that's part of it too is that for to a certain extent that fills the same hole for me um Mm. i don't know if that's the right word but yeah Yeah. i mean often when we go hiking we're, we're not chatting I'm often really like struck by people that are like having large, loud conversations in the woods on the trail Mm. because it's just like not (laughs) my thing. Like we just, we just go and experience it. And I do feel like most connected when I'm out there um, just experiencing that feeling that like the world is much larger than me like i am this insignificant little speck in this much larger universe that is just like operating on its own in amazing ways so do you think that came out would you say that came out of your upbringing or where did that that kind of sense of like wonder about the world and stuff where did that come from for you i don't know probably i i do think that that's like yeah that is a theme that you will find in Unitarian churches for sure. That sense mm-hmm. that like, even if you don't believe in God, there is something, everyone has that craving to feel like there's something larger than you that you can connect to. And so in congregations when where like, you can usually assume that at least half of your congregants are like actively do not believe in God, like not even questioning. Um, and the other half are probably actively questioning. Um, that, that is something that I think gives a lot of Unitarian congregants that feeling of connection. So one of the principles and purposes of Unitarian Universalism, I can recite some of them literally, and one of them is um, that that we are, what is it? A belief in the interconnected web of which we all are a part or something like that. That's Mm. close Mm. to what it is. (laughs) So what is that for you? Like that thing that's bigger than yourself that, that motivates you? Yeah, it's that interconnected web of like all of nature and... Okay. Yeah. Everything. And it doesn't have to have been created by a conscious force to be amazing. It just is. 
So did your uh, your husband grow up like religious at all? He grew up Jewish. He got bar mitzvahed, um, but oh, his yeah. family wasn't. <laughs> he got bar mitzvahed. I've never heard that before. <laughs> <laughs> he was bar mitzvahed. Like, he it's went through the whole process of like going to um, Hebrew school and all that. But then he was the youngest mm-hmm. of three kids. And once he finished his whole process, after that, his family pretty much only went to services for high holidays. Like They weren't super religious, but they wanted to give yeah, their yeah. kids i think the the cultural heritage of it as much as mm-hmm. the or more than yeah. the religion and so going through that process was very important to them um and they and we still you know we'll do something for passover um but it's not certainly spiritually it's not a, a big part of his life it's kind of a cultural thing yeah, I guess that yeah. he holds on to. Like especially, pa- yeah. I really appreciate doing Passover. I think more than he does, and like remembering the stories and um, sort mm. of the, oh, yeah. the message of liberation from oppression. And um, it's a cool yeah. like the it's Passover cool meal is yeah, it's really neat. Like just the symbolism and all that stuff. I think yeah, yeah. can be really special. Yeah, but like so, his family used to use this the the order of service for a Passover Seder was called the Haggadah and his family had this Haggadah that was like I don't know put out by Maxwell House or something I forget some coffee company (laughs) apparently was super widespread like in the 60s and it's this super conservative like version of the story I mean it's very traditional it's like the angry smiting god god just has it in for the pharaoh and like yeah, There's yeah. lots of death and destruction and smiting going on. Um, and no one in his family actively liked this. I got it. They just had never looked for anything else. And I started going to their Passovers and was like horrified. Mm. <laughs> just like, there's not a lot about like, I grew up, like, Unitarians often, like, pull in all these other holidays, right? So I had grown up doing some Passover seders occasionally, or at least learning the Passover mm-hmm. story as, like, this super lefty liberation story. Um, mm-hmm. And so, like, I think my third Passover with his family, I was like, can I can I find a different Haggadah? Can we not do that one this year? How did that go over? Yes, please. No, no, they loved it. (laughs) Oh, really? Uh, Yeah. Isn't that so interesting, though? Because I think that paints just almost the perfect picture of, like, how some people do traditions and stuff, where it's just like, this is it. This is the way we've always done it. We don't think about it. We just do it. And this is the way, you know? Right, right. And, you know, his his parents, his dad's parents... um, spoke Yiddish like they were much more and you know kept kosher and then his dad was you know much more um sort of cultural American Jew super rational scientist guy himself and so like um yeah I I think he had never stepped back and thought about what the other options were but you found a good one for him I did I kind of combined a couple actually (laughs) I got into it, <laughs> and I think I do think it's my upbringing too that like you're totally allowed to mix and match and and just play with right. stuff. You know? But that's cool because I think maybe you brought an extra, you spiced it up for them a little bit, you know, and maybe right. hopefully helped them 
um, I don't know, maybe reignited something for them with that tradition. There were definitely, you know, in the old Haggadah whole sections that they were like, do we have to read this page? And their mom would be like, no, we're skipping this page. You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> skip, skip. All right. So funny. What do we have to do? <laughs> I'm curious about like where you see yourself and the work that you do, like Wings, Wingspan, for instance, in that great interconnected web, like, what part does it play in the work, you know, the work that you do? That's a good question. I Don't mean, I would joke it. sometimes when I was working on it, you know, <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> you know I, want, I wanted to get birders into gaming and I wanted to get gamers into birding. Yeah. Which has happened to a certain extent. There's definitely people hmm. who will post occasionally in the, in the Facebook group that started out as gamers who are now like, how do I get started actually birding? Or like, look at the birds in my backyard. Yeah. These are amazing, you know, that kind of thing. So that's super fun. So, yeah, I mean, I guess that was my main thing was just like providing another point of connection for people that maybe haven't thought about birds before, but like, hey, these are really cool. Check them out. Well, it certainly is a game. It certainly is a beautiful game. And it certainly is a game that makes me think more about like the world around me, you know, um, like to celebrate this marvelous, intricate world that we live in. I think that way about parks too. Your game and then parks; yeah. those are two games that make me want to just like get outside more, which I already love to do. But I just, if anything, like prods me to do that further. I have an, a tend to have a deeper affection for it. So you know. there's really something wonderful about games that I think. Uh, not only are like beautiful themselves, but point to things that are beautiful. And mm. I think there's something too about wingspan that like, I, I don't even know why I couldn't tell you why or articulate it, but it does just m make you slow down. Mm. I don't know why. I don't know if that's a mechanic that's built into it or just <laughs> the, how it looks, the art, the components, whatever it is about it, the theme, but it, and for someone like me who like I'm I'm a I'm a pretty deep strategy gamer like Twilight Imperium is my favorite board game. So like mm -hmm. I have no problem like digging in head down strategizing for hours on end. But there's something mm -hmm. about the times that I played Wingspan where it it pulls me out of that and slows me down and just feels restful or something, you know? Yeah, a lot of the early re reviews were like, this game is really peaceful. Mm -hmm. It Was that intentional? Like, did that, I, you know, there's, I, I think a lot of creators and designers, people we talk to, there's like these things when their game comes out that they didn't intend and it was just like a happy little accident. Yeah. Thanks, Bob Ross. Like, was that, yeah. I mean, I think part of it's my personal play style. Like, there's not mm -hmm. a lot of, take, there's no take that in it. Right. There's no way to really attack other players. Um, it's like, I'm, so I'm one of those people that I'm like, sign me up for the multiplayer solitaire games. Like, <laughs> that's my jam. Yeah. Um, yeah. Some people use it as a criticism of games. And I'm like, no, that's awesome. Um, yeah. And then there's like little bits of interaction around the goals and things. And, and just, you know, but uh, I'm perfectly happy just like trying to do my best while everyone else is trying to do their best. And then you see who actually did best. Um, so I, th I think that's part of it, just that you can't attack other people. Um, mm. 
And I think the art contributes to um to mm, that feeling for sure. And yeah. I don't know. It it wasn't super my intention, but in playtesting there were definitely times that I would try things and be like, yeah, that just doesn't fit with birds. Like the feeling that mm-hmm. you would be watching birds is I didn't want things that felt like really contrary to that. It's definitely one of the most beautiful games out on the market today. Um, yeah, they really I knocked mean, the art out of the park yeah. and spent so much yeah. time on it. I mean, to do all those individual bird illustrations, it's just <laughs> yeah. mind-blowing. Yeah. And what an opportunity like, for, for those artists, too. Like They were just like, to get this commission to do 170 birds. And now we've done the Europe expansion with another working on the australia oceania expansion which is another however many and yeah they just keep going it's awesome keep going until you get all the birds yeah we said we want to do one per continent there you go so i mean even if you get like all the birds eventually right yeah well i mean you can do like prehistoric birds (laughs) somebody told me to ask about the the pterodactyls Once I get through all the continents, I will think about whether that makes sense. Well, we're excited. So uh, what are you, um, you've got the new expansion coming out. What can you tell us about that? Um, not a lot, because Stonemeyer likes to be super secretive. But he, um, so it was actually unusual that we even announced what continent it was going to be. But Jamie wanted to do a fundraiser for um, the wildfires that were earlier yeah, this yeah, year, yeah. which seemed like decades ago. <laughs> Now. I know, doesn't it? <laughs> Someone I just know, mentioned yeah. that it was like those wildfires were only a couple months ago, guys. Uh, so yeah, so Jamie did a big fundraiser that you could sign up. Like within a few days, you could sign up for the to be notified when the Oceania expansion comes out later this year, and he would donate a certain amount per person who signed up to the wildfire relief fund. Um, and it raised several thousand dollars. It was pretty exciting and awesome. Yeah, that's great. That. Well, it's great talking to you. Where can people yeah. follow you if they want to just like follow what you're up to? Yeah, so um, I have a website that's elizhargrave.com. So E-L-I-Z Hargrave. Um, and I have a little newsletter on there that I send out like once every month or two. Um, I'm pretty active on Twitter. So that's a good place to find me. Also, mm-hmm. Eliz Hargrave. Um and then I'm, I try and pop in on the Wingspan Facebook group a fair amount too. So I'll probably see something if you cool. put it there. And yeah. Also great to talk to you and, uh, you know, hope that uh, the rest of your quarantine goes <laughs> as well as it can. Thank yeah. you. You too. That's it for us. Uh, thanks for listening. Thanks. Bye-bye.